Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank. We are celebrating Black History Month this week with some of the most talented authors and artists out there working today. First up, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Tracy K. Smith. We'll talk about her new memoir, To Free the Captives, a plea for the American soul. In it, she looks to uncover Black strength and continuance and community by looking back at her own family's history And she does this really amazing thing in the book where she uses photographs and stories of her father growing up in Sunflower, Alabama, to figure out where we go next as a country. Then we're going to talk to writer and poet Saeed Jones about his book, Alive at the End of the World. And then we're going to hear some music from McLeet. We have an amazing episode of Livewire, which all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey there, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going great. Are you ready for a little station location identification examination? Yes, sirree. All right. This is the part of the show where I quiz Elena on somewhere in the country where on the radio. She's got to figure out where I am talking about. This city was the setting for two significant events in the civil rights movement. This is our Black History Month special this week. In February 1961, nine black men staged a sit-in at the segregated McCrory's Five and Dime lunch counter. Uh, And then later in 1961, uh, this city was the first stop for a group of 13 Freedom Riders who boarded buses in D.C. and headed south to uh, test the Supreme Court ruling outlawing racial segregation on all interstate public facilities. Yes. And I'll give you a hint. It's a a state that I think you know uh, dear and well. Yes. uh, Right off of Highway 77, I believe. Rock Hill, South Carolina. Yes, exactly. Rock Hill, South Carolina, which is on the other side of the state line, but not super far, I'm told, from Charlotte, North Carolina, where we're on WNSC-FM. So nice pull, Elena. All right. You ready to get to the show? Let's do it. All right. Take it away. From PRX, it's... This week, author Tracy K. Smith. In the American imagination, there's a group of people who will always be free. And for the rest of us, people who descend from histories of violence or colonization or 
other forms of oppression, we are freed. And writer and poet Saeed Jones. In the green room, this is what Maya Angelou said, Billie Holiday told her, you're going to be famous, but it won't be for singing. With music from McLeet. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Thank you very much, Elena. Thanks to everyone tuning in this week from all over the country. We have a special edition of the show. We are celebrating Black History Month on this episode. So we are going to sort of break format a little bit because we have some amazing guests and we don't want to dilly-dally. We want to get right to them. So let's talk about our first guest. She's a librettist, translator, and the author of five acclaimed poetry collections, including the Pulitzer Prize-winning Life on Mars. Uh, Her memoir, Ordinary Light, was a finalist for the National Book Award. And she was also, side note, the 22nd Poet Laureate of the United States. No big deal. Her latest book is To Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul. This is a conversation with Tracy K. Smith, who joined us on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Been a huge fan of yours for a long time. And uh, one of the things that jumped out at me about this new book is the kind of one of the central ideas, I think, which is the difference between being a person being free or a person being freed. Can you kind of explain that? I felt really shocked when this dawned on me as I was thinking about history, thinking about the archive, and I realized that in the American imagination, there's a group of people who we imagine have always been and will always be free. And it's attached to whiteness in many ways. And for the rest of us, people who descend from histories of violence or colonization or other forms of oppression, we are freed. And what I realize that means is there's kind of a border. The point past which we can't really expect certain possibilities, opportunities, or even forms of regard. It's, it's frightening, but I think it's something that maybe we should start talking about. Mm. Um, in the book, you say that you get a, a warm rush of feeling in your chest when you think of mm-hmm. Sunflower, Alabama. <laughs> what does Sunflower, Alabama mean to you? Well, first of all, it's such a beautiful name. I know. Yeah. I'd never heard of it before the book, and now I get a warm rush. Yeah, thank you. It. What a great town. That's the small town um, outside of Mobile where my father grew up. And it was a place where generations of his family had made their home. And a rural community, my father's people were farmers. And I visited Sunflower just once or twice um, growing up. And what I always remembered, although the generations of his family were gone, the little one-room post office. Mm -hmm. I think it is, you can look it up on the internet. I don't know if it's actually still there, but just like this little white clabbered building with Sunflower and the zip code. Mm. But it just reminds me of um, the black love and care and creativity uh, with which his family and he found ways to thrive in a, in a world, in a state, in a system of segregation that was really designed to impede that for, for black people. Yeah, the photographs in this book are just so incredible um, throughout, but particularly the ones of your, I 
think it would be your uh, grandfather and your great uncles, mm -hmm. like fighting in World War One, and these men are, are are so kind of put together and so patriotic in what they're doing, and are going to come back to a country when they come back from Europe that is going to treat them as second-class people. Mm -hmm. um, did you have these photographs in your family? Were they kicking around? Like, where'd you get them? They're a big part of the book to it's, me. It, it was helpful for me to look at images of of soldiers from my grandfather's time. And it wasn't until the book was really finished that a cousin of mine shared this photograph of my grandfather from mm. World War I. It's very worn, um, but it was wonderful to be able to actually place him in their midst. But originally, I just really wanted to get a sense of the texture of history and maybe read the feelings, the expressions, the body language of, of these young men who uh, some volunteered, some were, were drafted to defend freedom and democracy abroad. And many of them did so believing that they might also chip away at the second-class citizenship that uh, characterized their lives here. And I think it, the crushing reality was that was not the case. You say that these are men who almost couldn't be contained by a photograph. What do you mm -hmm. mean by that? I think that's true of all of us. But, um, you know, looking at... For me, sometimes I, I forget that the historical archive is full of you know, stories of people whose lives were robust and vivid and that life force is still present. Sometimes it's in the, their voices and letters and sometimes it's just in the sense of um, feeling and I don't know, like possibility that you can read in those still images. And it was really helpful to remind myself and maybe also encourage the readers to say, no life can be contained in a photograph. Mm. Every life will spill beyond the borders, but it, it can give us a glimmer of, of the much that is there. Yeah. You um, tell a story about your parents on their honeymoon, and they've gone to great lengths to make sure that they could find a hotel that would allow them to stay there as black Americans. And even though they'd done all their due diligence, they're still turned away. And you write a line, uh, the punch always lands. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of describe yeah. that? I don't think there were people for whom the blow of that sense of discrimination disappeared. You know, the feeling that even though you expect it, it still hurts. It still perhaps surprises you a little bit, and it still makes its point. And I realized that's a big part of the intention of Jim Crow and, and segregation. And I guess there are other forms of, of that um, that we still live with. But part of the insidious nature of segregation is that it's something you don't get used to. It's something that can take the wind out of you each time. And I also believe another feature of that is that it's labor and effort, even for the people who believe themselves to be free or mm. at the top of the... Um, racial hierarchy, they're exerting a tremendous effort to try and reinforce and defend what they believe is rightfully theirs. Mm. And it's such an awful waste of, of spirit and energy. Um, and we, we see forms of that still. Yeah, sure. Isn't it, isn't it weird to think about your parents when they were younger than you are now? <laughs> I feel like this book is a real journey yeah. for you of thinking about your parents at a time when they were kids, basically. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you to just kind of like think about their lives, not as my parents or my dad who's, you know, was in the Air Force and was making you like, you know, clean your floor with a <laughs> toothbrush and stuff, but like he was a 
20-something-year-old guy, you know, oh, living yeah. his life. It's just my heart, like, ached. I um, tell a story about my dad after he graduated from high school, and he, you know, decided he was going to go to Detroit and try and get a job, maybe in the auto industry. And he was 18, and he got up there, and many doors were closing. Mm -hmm. um, the opportunities didn't arrive. And I just think about this young, this child, really, trying to figure out who he is allowed to become and also thinking about the sense of duty or obligation that might have capped some of the other wishes or expectations. My mother was in college at the same time, but I think my father um, and some of the circumstances in his family felt bound to start earning a living and maybe mm -hmm. contributing. Um, I work with students who are you know, his age and older, and I don't know, it, it broke my heart to think that I couldn't be there and say, you can, you can do whatever you put your mind to, which is what my father and mother always said to me when I was growing up. Well, that seems to be something else that's revealed in the book is a, maybe a newfound awareness for you as a daughter of what your dad and mom were going through. I mean, you find these letters that your dad had written, you know, to the Air Force when there was some issue over he moved too much furniture right. too <laughs> from heavy. base to base. And, and, and I mean, uh, you know, your, your father was obviously tremendously smart. He worked on the Hubble telescope, but then was told he was not going to have his contract renewed or was not going to get more government work because he didn't have a quote-unquote high enough level of education. Meanwhile, your brother's in medical school at this point, and like you're about to go to Harvard. Yeah. And, and so your dad is living that version of his life to make your life possible, yeah. right? Is that, was that something you were fully aware of before you started on this book? Absolutely not. Um, when my siblings and I sold the house that we grew up in, um, I was the one who inherited all these boxes of papers and records and some military um, you know, medals and things. And I moved to Boston a couple of years ago, and that was the first time that I opened up those boxes and went through all of the documents. And I kind of felt like my father was guiding me from mm. you know envelope to envelope, telling me this true story, which was he had a big family and he was working in, you know, one of the most hierarchical institutions in America and um, was constrained, you know. And there was this moment, like you said, where he got this bill from the federal government saying, you owe us $1,030 for overshipment of household goods. And I just, when I read that, I knew that he felt accused of stealing or lying and I also knew that you know he was an honest man and we were a big family and so I found these um, sheets where he was adding up income and expenses trying to figure out could I could he afford to pay this off um, and then drafts of the letter that he wrote to the government saying you know I'm a career airman and um, just making this case yeah this is Livewire from PRX. We are celebrating Black History Month this week on the show and listening to a conversation with Tracy K. Smith, the author and former poet laureate of the U.S. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, Tracy will be reading from her new book, To Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul, and you don't want to miss it. So stay with us here on Livewire. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. 
Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use Livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We are celebrating Black History Month this week on the show, and we're talking to Tracy K. Smith, the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and former Poet Laureate of the United States. Tracy joined us on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, to talk about her latest book, to Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul, which is sort of a personal manifesto, which also weaves in her own family history with broader themes of black strength and community. Uh, we're going to pick that conversation up now. This is Tracy K. Smith here on Livewire. Could you read a little bit from mm-hmm. the book, actually? Uh, in 1987, after my father is denied U.S. Department of Defense employment due to his lack of education... Just as he begins to slump under the fear that he's exhausted all options, he accepts a job with American Airlines as an aircraft technician. In the last chapter of his career, at age 52, with a son in medical school and a daughter dreaming of college, my father returns to square one. He becomes an airman again. If there is a part of him 
that is anything other than relieved, if this job is in any way a blow to his pride, I feel like the spoiled child I must always have been, even to wonder such a thing. It is my mother who consoles him. She teaches him to see himself correctly. He is brilliant, hardworking, and wise. He's provided diligently, lovingly, for five children, and look what all they've done. She's proud of him. She feels lucky. She reminds him of something from their early life together, how they saved their honeymoon from the clerk at that Jim Crow hotel, how she'd do it all over again from that day forward, from earlier still. When she says this, the souls of everyone they love are suddenly there in the room with them. I believe there's something else we summon in our coming together, a source of succor and presence that further attests to what waits in soon. I hear it in between the words of old gospel hymns, like we'll understand it better by and by. I hear it in the places where time's shifting nature, bolstered and deepened by grief, peeks through. We are more than. We are many. We minister forward and back to ourselves across an inexplicable divide. It is evidence of some unnamed law, a clause we have not been taught, but which nevertheless on occasion can be seen to apply. By and by, when the morning comes, when the saints of God are gathered home, we'll tell the story how we've overcome, for we'll understand it better by and by. We abide in an ever-unfolding soon. We are not overcome. We shall overcome. We will understand it better by and by. That's Tracy K. Smith reading from her new book, To Free the Captives. Uh, sadly, uh, both of your parents have passed, but you write in the book that when you want to talk to your mom, you have to go through God, but when you want to talk <laughs> yes. to your dad, you can just kind of talk to him or see yeah. him somewhere. Yeah. What, what, what's that about? What's that about? Um, well, you know, I grew up in a religious family, and I think my mother um, had a very clear sense that it was God that we were talking to, and it was heaven to which we would return after death, and we were forbidden from, like, messing around with Ouija boards or playing, you know, with goats mm -hmm. because she felt those things were real and they mm -hmm. could lead us astray. Um, and so when she died, I felt obedient. I was like, I, I miss her, but I'm just going to, you know, direct my thoughts toward where she told me she would be. Um, but then after my dad died, he just seemed to be so sociable. <laughs> I, I would see, you know, I felt like he was there tapping my shoulder. Look, look at that bird. Or, um, you know, like, isn't this interesting? Or even actually I was working on um, my book Life on Mars, which is a, an elegy for him in many ways. And I was writing all these poems about the, you know, future and about space and even thinking about some of the images from the Hubble telescope. But I had forgotten that for about six years during my childhood, he worked on that project. And there was a moment where I feel like he kind of woke me up. He was like, come on, remember those company picnics that we went to? And suddenly I was like, oh, right, here he is yet again. 
And I love that. I feel the connection that spans, you know, this side of the mortal divide and that one is something that allows for, um, I don't know, communication, certainly love, um, but also, I think, guidance. And in a lot of ways, I feel like this book was about trying to open that dialogue up even further with my dad and even with some of his family members who died before I was born. I believe they are still engaged in the ongoing project of liberation. And I think they're here to help us complete this work. Wow. Yeah. Um, Also, I noticed that you capitalized the word God. Yeah. In the book. Was that an intentional choice? Well, it wasn't an accident. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's part of that uh, reverence, I mm. think, that I grew up with. And also, as a kid, I used to, um, I liked reading the King James Bible. I mm. think a lot of writers love the cadence of that text. And so I liked the formality of those capital letters to mm. signify, you know, grandeur, um, mystery, I think it's really related in some ways to the irregularities of grammar or, or even capitalization that live in poetry or that can yeah. live in poetry. Um, so I do, I do that. I, I think, okay, there's this big figure, a source, and I like to imagine that maybe if I use that capital letter, it will come, it'll con- consent to come <laughs> a little bit nearer and, and uh, nudge me from time to time. This book kind of feels like it's, kind of got three parts to it you know there's this history of your family um there's the memoir aspect of your life and then there's a kind of a conversation around like blackness in america mm-hmm. um and one thing i didn't realize was going to be in there is you talking about your sobriety and you mm-hmm. had a line in there that just knocked me over and i think it was something to the effect of we we think that we're only going to feel joy through pleasure mm-hmm. and that getting past that idea for you was part of understanding how to be a sober person. Yeah. I, after I had three young kids, I went through a period of intense grief for the young person that I remembered being and the freedom um, that I I think that that's a knowing titter from the audience. (laughs) People with children. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I found that I was drinking more and more doggedly uh, when that feeling was upon me and it was upon me more and more. Um, and I wish that I can say I made the decision to stop drinking at a certain point when I realized what was happening, but I I remember for a long time saying, one day, maybe I'll be one of those people, Hmm. um, but there came a moment when I feel like there was like a divine intervention where I said, I really want, I want an old fashioned and I made one and I took a sip and it just tasted awful. Hmm. I did it again. The same thing happened. I poured a glass of wine and it just dawned on me that this was never going to feel right. It was never going to do what I wanted it to do because that wasn't perhaps what I needed to be doing. Um, you know who that was? Capital G capital God. Capital G. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my my family would say, I also grew up at the church. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel hopeful that we can arrive at a place where the, the freed are actually free? And what do you think needs to happen? Mm -hmm. Well, I have kids, and so I really need to be hopeful. Um, Part of sobriety for me is realizing that it's not a burden to accept accountability. Mm -hmm. It's actually, you know, it could be this wonderful 
form of, I don't know, um, liberation to say, what I have, meager as it may be, will grow larger if I can commit to it and even share it, pass it on to others. And I feel like the dilemma that we're in the midst of now that has to do with the ways we do or don't consent to regard one another, uh, I think it's something that we can become large enough to confront or to admit that we're accountable within. I think a big part of that has to do with those who might believe themselves to be the freest, the most powerful, those at the top of all the many hierarchies that we invest in in our culture, for them to realize they're equally bound hmm. in a system that makes them smaller than they could be. Um, and I'm, you know, I want to be helpful to that project. Yeah. Well, this book is really incredible. Tracy K. Smith, it's to free the captives here on Livewire. Thank you so much. That was Tracy K. Smith right here on Livewire. Her latest book, To Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul, is out right now. Sometimes checking your email, let's be honest, can be a little stressful. But we want to change that over here at Livewire. We want to make checking your email more joyful with our weekly newsletter which is only good news. That's all we do over here at the Livewire newsletter. We got sneak peeks and deep dives on upcoming events, uh, details on where you can join us live, new episode drops, and even more than that. Getting this drop of joy, it's super easy too. You head over to livewireradio.org and you click keep in touch. It takes like 30 seconds, 25 if you're speedy. So help us help you have a little more fun in your inbox with the latest from the LiveWire newsletter. Special thanks this episode to Aaliyah Keating of Sandy, Oregon, and Michelle Rosenthal of Seattle, Washington. Aaliyah and Michelle are part of the LiveWire member community and are generously supporting our show with a donation each month, which is something we are very thankful for because it is genuinely what allows us to keep the program going. So a big thanks to Michelle and Aaliyah for keeping Livewire in business. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Our next guest's work has appeared in the New York Times, the New Yorker and GQ magazine, among many other places. His really incredible memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives, was the recipient of the 2019 Kirkus Prize for Nonfiction. And the U.S. Poet Laureate Ada Lamone has called his latest collection, Alive at the End of the World, a serious argument for community and the rebellion of joy. This is our conversation with Saeed Jones, recorded in 2022. Saeed, welcome back to the show. Hi, honey. How are you? It's so good to see you. The last time we talked, uh, you were at your home in Columbus, and yes. you had just gotten a dog named Caesar, yes. and it was during the pandemic, and we were literally looking for anyone we oh, could yeah. talk to 
And we saw on like, I don't know, the internet that you had gotten a dog and we said, that sounds like yep. 20 minutes of radio. Yeah. Month one. Month yeah. one of lockdown. You're like, yeah. do you have time? I'm like, yes, I have time. Are you kidding me? What do you need me? What do we want to talk? We talk about anything. Sure. Dog? Okay, I'll bring the dog. Yeah. Yes. It was great. Well, thank you for your being generous thank with your you. time. Now, your new book, Alive at the End of the World, you have a line in it where you, you say, did I just trick myself into writing another memoir, <laughs> right? We had you on for How We Fight for Our Lives, yes. your memoir about your life and your mm-hmm. mother and everything. Is this book of poetry something where you also accidentally wrote another <laughs> memoir? I think I did trick myself. Yeah, mm. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I, I write poetry collections one poem at a time. And so I'm just kind of focused on, you know, these very, to me, minor kind of moments of, of deep humanity. But yeah, when you begin to step back and you're like mm. 20 poems, 30 poems and everything, it is a bit surprising. And um, I think I uh, had a lot more clearly to unpack. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, in reading this this book, it it really struck me as a person who was working through a lot of pain, mm-hmm. including mm-hmm. the section where you're annoyed at an audience member who asks you basically the question I just asked you. <laughs> <laughs> I like to get right to it. You know, the secret is make straight white men nervous from the jump. Yeah. Just nip it at the bud, honey. Uh-huh. Getting stressed. Finish your posture. Uh. <laughs> I can't even remember what we were talking about. I was just so excited to get to... Where, I, I mean, where's this book? I, I saw an opening. And I, I, guess my, I guess my real question is, was it cathartic for you to write about these things in the book, or was it re-traumatizing? Mm, it was not re-traumatizing. I, I don't find writing... I don't know. I mean, I, I've never found it to be uh, traumatizing. I don't know. I mean, it, it's too hard. It's too much of a craft. I, too much joy. It, it's it's our, our engine, so... How could that hurt me um, is kind of how I feel. Um, I think it was cathartic, though, in the sense that, well, one, you know, I, I don't know if you know, but the world is ending. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, I felt thinking about dystopia and the apocalypse. I mean, there's an entire genre of not just literature, it's like culture and every form about the dystopia and what happens. And um, but who who's entrusted to be the hero or the historian in those stories? It's a pretty narrow mm-hmm. aperture. And I was like, well, why not? Why can't that person that we entrust? The, the history and the perspective of like, here's what's going down, here's what we need to pack up and carry, and here's what we need to leave to poison. Why can't that person be a black queer person who's, who's grieving? Mm-hmm. Why not? Yeah. Um, we're talking to Saeed Jones about his latest collection of poetry. It's called Alive at the End of the World. Can we, uh, can we hear a poem from the book? Sure, sure, yeah. So, so um, I guess for a little, in, in addition to, yeah, you're right, tricking myself into writing another memoir. Um, I, my mother, um, Carol Sweet Jones, uh, died of heart disease um, just over a decade ago. Um, and so it was like right in the middle of, well, last year was the 10-year anniversary um, of her passing, right? So in the depth of this pandemic, you know, and you know all the detail, y'all were there. We are there, right? Um, I, I was thinking about that because, of course, when you're grieving, I mean, it, it is an ongoing relationship. It's not the end. It's the beginning of a new phase in your relationship with who you miss, right? And, I, you know, you often think, like, I wish they were here. God, I, I wish I could tell them, like, how much fun I had or whatever. Um, 
But the thing is, in the middle of the pandemic, I was like, okay, well, your mother died of heart disease, which disproportionately kills black women in this country. It's like if, it, if it's not like uh, giving birth in this country, it's heart disease for black women. Mm-hmm. Statistically, it's horrifying. Um, and she worked at an airport in Atlanta in the state of Georgia. So I was like, you sure you want to bring her back? For this, you know, like, so I, so I think with this book, I was thinking so much about the afterlife of grief. That's what I've come to call it. And uh, this poem's about that afterlife vibe. A stranger. I wonder if my dead mother still thinks of me. I know I don't know her new name. I don't know her. Not now. I don't know if her is the word burning in a stranger's mind when he sees my dead mother walking down the street in her bright black dress. I wonder if he inhales the cigarette smoke that will eventually kill him and thinks, I wish I knew a woman who was both the light and every shadow the light pierces. I wonder if a passing glance at my dead mother is enough to make a poet out of anyone. I wonder if I'm the song she hums as she waits for the light to change. Thank you. Thank you. Saeed Jones, reading from Alive at the End of the World. You... You have a line, it's actually kind of in the sort of after notes of this book mm-hmm. that just absolutely floored me. You wrote, you don't get to decide when an experience is done with you. It's true. <laughs> That's intense. Like, learn it now. Um, and I also heard a lot of nods of right, but it's true, right? I mean, I think my theory is it has something to do with capitalism, honestly. Um, <laughs> The ethos of American capitalism is that move on, get up, because you got to get back to work. Right. Grief, depression, gender journeys, you know, all of these, you know, candor, intelligence, you know, is deeply inconvenient for capitalism. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, so we really have this ethos, right, built into us, like move on, pick it up. And so I think there, yeah, it's like, you know, you feel the pressure. No one has to say it to you. Right. I think America is really good at like teaching us how to bully ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, but no, it's not up to you, you know, when, when you get to stop crying. And then, and then that manifests in the poem. It's like it's not up to me when I get to stop crying. Right. Like, yeah. yeah and I think that's true. I mean, you all kinds of relationships, breakups, even jobs. You know, I've had an experience where I had a job and I left and years later, I was like still mad at a boss I hadn't spoken to. And you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, you know, and so I wanted to I think grief like queerness has opened me up to understanding so much of so many aspects of humanity it's the most you know grieving and being queer i think are two of the most humanizing experiences of my life and and so yeah i, I found i found power in acknowledging that perhaps i'm still enthralled to a dynamic that i would very much like to move on from or claim a sense of power in relation to but like maybe maybe i'm less in control than i thought which is like did i just trick myself right. into, yeah Mm-hmm. Um, there is a poem in this book with the title Performing as Miss Calypso Maya Angelou dances whenever she forgets the lyrics Which Billie Holiday, seated in the audience, finds annoying <laughs> Is any part of that a real thing that happens? Yes, 
Yes, Maya Maya Angelou, Doctor Maya Angelou, uh, wrote it, uh, it, it. I can't remember the title, but it's in one of her memoirs. One of her memoirs. She wrote about it several decades later. Um, but yeah, yeah, early in, Maya Angelou is just like a fascinating figure. And I tell people, I think, you know, I appear in the book, a lot of ghosts, um, and then also a lot of um, black kind of cultural icons, Little Richard, Diane Carroll, Toni Morrison. Paul Mooney. Paul Mooney. Oh, love the Paul Mooney. But, but Maya, I tell people, is I think arguably the happiest person in the poem mm. because she's just like, we'll do it. <laughs> like she, at that point in her life, she was performing um, with the, under the stage name Miss Calypso in the Bay Area. Uh, not a very good singer, um, but a great dancer. She was always an incredible dancer. And so literally when she would forget the lyrics... She, and I mean, she was, I mean, look at pictures from Maya. I mean, I think Maya was beautiful her whole life, but whoa, whoa. And at this point in her life, like she'd be performing, forget the lyrics, and she'd just go, I appear to have forgotten the lyrics. And then like she would then do a dance. <laughs> kind of till she got back to, you know, and so obviously the men in the were like, you can forget the lyrics all you want. <laughs> And then, so, so then, you know, decades later, and one, you know, because my um, uh, Angela wrote like a series of, of, of memoirs, you know, she lived so many lives, which is another interesting you know, parallel with the book. Um, Billie Holiday turns out to be in the audience and, and comes to talk to her in the green room. And I think they saw each other like, like she visited her at her home later and did not get along. They did not like each other. Uh, my Angela is really homophobic. Because of rumors about um, Billie Holiday's bisexuality, so uh. she and she says, I mean, very transparent in her own writing. I was like, I just didn't think very highly of her. I think there's a direct line from Billie Holiday to like maybe the caliber of Whitney Houston. So imagine you're on stage just getting along, being your little, you know, you think it's cute, and you look out, and then there's like, there is the artist of the form that you are on stage making a joke of in front of her. And so in the green room, this is what Maya Angelou said, Billie Holiday told her, you're going to be famous, but it won't be for singing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was the end. That, there's one album, one music album in all of Maya Angelou's life she recorded. It was Miss Calypso. That was it. Whoa. A rap. So I'm like, well, I guess Billie Holiday was right. And then Billie Holiday di like, died a few years later. It's incredible. Yeah. What are the odds? <laughs> well, you mentioned Whitney Houston, and you yes. have a poem about Diane Carroll mm -hmm. in, the, uh, Bever in a Beverly Hills hotel mm -hmm. and a bathtub, a bath. mm -hmm. which to me very much seemed like it's also a poem about Whitney Houston. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know? that's a parallel. I mean, because because yeah. of the circumstances around her passing and also her life. Mm -hmm. I mean, are you seeing a connection between all of the women that you're writing about in this book, including your mother? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think you see me on the page examine and perform my distress, um, my, my peril, like my sense of like, oh, what's going on and everything like that. And I think it's always important, you know, I mean, I, I think a great deal about um, intersectionality and everything like that and, and what's going on in our country. But as much as I'm freaked out, it's like, you know who, who it's really hard for in this country? It's like black women, mm -hmm. black trans women, you know? So I, I, I think it's important, you know, even as I'm like owning, y'all are freaking me out, you know, you're stressing out Saeed. I also think it's important for me to think like, well, what else? Like who else is, you know, going through this? And in thinking about my mom's experiences and certainly the women who appear in the book, I'm like, yeah, it's like, yeah, Saeed, you have a certain privilege to speak out about your age, your rage and your distress. It's very dangerous for black women to be as vocal. You know, I mean, you know, a black woman says the sky is blue and you see the pushback, you see the disrespect. You note at the end of the book, certain poems being nonfiction. Yeah. 
which presumes the existence of fictional poems. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to understand the difference because aren't all poems nonfiction on some level because it's an experience, it's a feeling. Like, what's the difference between a nonfiction poem and a fiction poem for you? Um, I've written poems and certainly read poems to other people that could be a short story, mm-hmm. you know, in a different, I mean, persona, you know, um, yeah, you know, Billie Holiday, Maya Angelou. I mean, that's not, I mean, it's, it's based on something in truth, but I'm, I'm taking on Maya Angelou as a character, okay. you know, um, the dynamic, the, the capital T truth may be present, but is it accurate, factual? No. So okay. I, I, I liked... Uh, trying to identify for the reader these specific moments. Like, this is a nonfiction poem where um, it's essentially like looking at poetry's potential to kind of function as a personal essay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the, would you consider the Luther Vandross poem nonfiction or fiction? Ooh, that's a good, I mean, it's definitely closer to nonfiction. I mean, it's, yeah, I think it is nonfiction in that I, I tried to, Every detail in the poem is, yeah, something he went through in his life, pretty specific. Like, he, w- he would, like, in, if you read um, an excellent biography of his by Craig Seymour, and they were pretty close and what, like, Luther never used pronouns when talking about his relationship. Like, he was so closeted. Mm. He, was, he, was, he was very strategic. So he, he wouldn't say, he would just say, I'm in love. Mm-hmm. I'm in love, and it's so great. He wouldn't, he was very careful, you know? Well, you write that this poem... Uh, that is about Luther Vandross is you made it intentionally difficult to read aloud yes. as a reference to how Luther Vandross would like yeah, yeah. collaborate. Yeah, Luther was a bitch. It was great. <laughs> I, you know, I get it. I mean, who wouldn't be? You know, under those, you know, the closet's a very stressful place to be. Turns out it makes you not so nice. Um, but yeah, he was also, you know, genius and rigorous. You know, The Wiz. Yeah. You know the whiz? Yeah, we yeah. love the. Okay, thank you. All right. It was, <laughs> it was on national I television. I was in Portland. <laughs> it was, Black people know the whiz. Okay, we got it. It was on national television <laughs> when there was like three channels. You got it. Luther Vandross wrote two songs for it when he was a teenager. What? Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was the, the range of his talent. Um, I think, honestly, just weight and sexuality would have totally changed the dynamics of his career. Um, Anyway, so he was really rigorous in the studio, and he gets to the point at his peak, he's consistently collaborating with people like Aretha Franklin, Mm -hmm. and if even Aretha, while singing, recording, would mispronounce a li- he would stop. I assumed you they, were referencing they would get like into a... whole arguments. Oh, I whole thought you just arguments. meant like a random I others. I didn't realize that, that Aretha, Aretha Franklin was. Yeah, yeah. The quote is, I mean, he because it happens. And they were, I mean, they they would fuss and break up. and f- They were very much like frenemies. Hmm. It was really interesting. They made up towards the end of his life, which I think was good. Um, what did he say? He, he interrupted her, and she said, who has the most number one albums, Luther? And he said, how long has it been since your last one? (laughs) That's when I tell you, like, studying history and going into this to, like, keep, I was like, whoa, I'm a lot, a reason to live for another day. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Well, we are very glad to have you here with us and glad to have this piece of work. It's Alive at the End of the World by Saeed Jones. Saeed, thank you so much. That was Saeed Jones right here on Livewire this week. We were talking about his latest book. Of course, Elena, you are also uh, a big podcast fan of Saeed's show. Oh, yeah. I don't miss an episode of Vibe Check, which stars Saeed, Zach Stafford, and other friend of Livewire, Sam Sanders. It is such a great podcast, and I cannot I cannot miss a single episode. It feels to me, I listen to that show too, like the perfect kind of like 
update on what's happening out in the culture, but then also like a serious, meaningful conversation about about what's happening, but not in a way that feels like you're just kind of, you know, in class or something. Like it's just kind of the right exact, well, it's called vibe check. It's like the right exact vibe of everything. It's like nuanced and challenging and kind, like all three things at once. And uh, probably a template for what we should try to do more of on this show. Uh, (laughs) Saeed's latest book, Alive at the End of the World, is out right now, and you should go grab it. This is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We have to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere. Uh, We are celebrating Black History Month this week on the show. And when we come back, we are going to hear some of the really innovative musical stylings of McLeet. So don't go anywhere. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are celebrating Black History Month this week on the show, and our musical guest is a master mixologist, and, and not the kind that will make you a, you know, like weird martini with a, you know, cottage cheese in it or something. All due respect <laughs> to master mixologists. A protein martini. <laughs> yeah, right. It's very big, very big right now. Uh, what she does is blend the sounds of East Africa with the Bay Area to create her own kind of unique style of Ethio jazz. Her most recent album is When the People Move, the Music Moves Too. She's also the host of Movement, where she tells stories of global migration through music. Oh, and also her TED Talk, which she has, The Unexpected Beauty of Everyday Sounds, has been viewed over a million times at this point. Uh, Take a listen to this. It's McLeet here on Livewire. Hi. Hi, welcome back. Well, it's good to be back. What song are we going to hear, McLeet? We're going to hear a song. We're going to play a song for you called I Want to Sing for Them All. And this is like, this is my anthem. All my Ethiopian influences and my American influences put together into one very danceable number. So if you want to shake on in your seats or get up and dance, well, you know, you are more than welcome. And in your car at home, if you're listening to this right now. I mean, safely. Put down the cell phone, stop texting, and do a little chair dancing, too. Word up. This is McLeod, everybody.
listening to Michael and Aster, Prince and Mahamud. They both took me there. They took me to a place. Music let you find. Forget all your trouble. I'm burning your
That was McLeet right here on Livewire. Make sure you check out her album, When the People Move, the Music Moves Too, and also her podcast, Movement. That is going to do it for this week's episode of Livewire. A huge thanks to our guests, Tracy K. Smith, Saeed Jones, and McLeet. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. And our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Eben Hoffer and Molly Pettit are our technical directors. And our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Trey Hester is our assistant editor. Our marketing and production manager is Karen Pan. Rosa Garcia is our operations associate. Jackie Ibarra is our production fellow. And Becky Phillips is our intern. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who composes our music. This episode was mixed by Molly Pettit and Trey Hester. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Aliyah Keating of Sandy, Oregon, and Michelle Rosenthal of Seattle, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show, so you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review. And if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.